Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, August the 19th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, August 23rd, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 70th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show is part two of a two-part focus on Afghanistan and the cost of war with Matthew Ho. As our preface to our part two Afghan show, wanted to share some words of Marjorie Cohn. She's a professor emirata at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, where she taught for 25 years and a former president of the National Lawyers Guild. It's an important premise for our discussion to understand that the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan was an illegal one. According to Marjorie Cohn, quote, the U.N. Charter is a treaty ratified by the United States and thus part of U.S. law. Under the Charter, a country can use armed force against another country only in self-defense or when the Security Council approves. Neither of these conditions was met before the United States invaded Afghanistan. The Taliban did not attack us on 9-11. 19 men, 15 from Saudi Arabia, did. And there was no imminent threat that Afghanistan would attack the U.S. or another U.N. member country. The Council did not authorize the United States or any other country to use military force against Afghanistan. The U.S. war in Afghanistan is illegal. End quote. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is your community radio station. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. And today we are with our very special guest, Matt Ho. Today is Thursday, August the 19th, 2021. And this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, August the 23rd from 6 to 7 p.m. Before I return to our guest, I had a couple of, of pieces that I wanted to review real quickly. So let me just do that. Number one. We were talking about, and we will be talking about the corruption in Afghanistan. And of course, the corruption is not just Afghanis. Of course, it's us. As multiple audits have revealed, and it's a consistent pattern that we're going to share with respect to Iraq as well in this intro. But I wanted to start the show with this more global concept of this wealth inequality and the incredible impact it has on the majority poor of the world. And a piece called Global Billionaires See 5.5 Trillion Pandemic Wealth Surge by Chuck Collins, August 11th, 2021. The facts are revealing that the world's billionaires have seen their wealth surge by over 5.5 trillion since the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020. That's a gain of over 68% from some 8 trillion on March 18th, 2020 
to $13.5 trillion as of July 31, 2021. This is based on data from Forbes. Global billionaires' total wealth has increased more over the past 17 months of the pandemic than it did in the 15 years prior to the pandemic. The analysis and proposal was released back in the beginning of August by Oxfam, the Fight Inequality Alliance, the Institute for Policy Studies, and the Patriotic Millionaires. As a solution-oriented recommendation, these organizations are calling on governments to tax the ultra-wealthy who profited from the pandemic crisis to help offset its costs. The one-time emergency COVID-19 billionaire tax would raise some $5.445 trillion and still leave the world's 2,690 billionaires $55 billion richer than before the virus struck. This revelation of the enormous profiteering of this class of billionaires in face of the devastating consequences to the rest of the world and those in our country I think reveals the character of a system that demands change, but whose features are so well hidden from the U.S. public consciousness. Less than 1% of people in low-income countries have received a vaccine, while the profits made by Big Pharma have seen the CEOs of Moderno and BioNTech become billionaires. The COVID-19 crisis has pushed over 200 million people into poverty. And according to an Oxfam April 29th, 2021 press release report, cost women around the world at least $800 billion in lost income in 2020, equivalent to more than the combined GDP of 98 countries. At the same time, according to a July 9th, 2021 report by Oxfam, a six-fold increase in people suffering famine-like conditions since the pandemic began has resulted in 11 people dying every minute from hunger, now outpacing COVID-19 fatalities, which were seven per minute. So we forget that this wealth inequality is a reflection of a status quo that kills so many people. And then the pandemic is layered on top of that for the last year plus months. The world's billionaires have seen their wealth surge by over 5.5 trillion since the beginning of the pandemic. Meanwhile, the cost of vaccinating the world's population was calculated as two doses at $7 per dose for 5 billion people for a total of 70 billion. And this is based on the average cost per dose. Oxfam, these other groups, do not endorse such high prices for vaccines and are campaigning for patient-free access to generic manufacturers. And then finally, according to the International Labor Organization, the ILO's World Employment and Social Outlook 2021 flagship report, 220 million people are currently unemployed. Of these, 114 million people were made jobless by COVID-19. This taxation deal would give a one-off of 20000 cash grant to all the workers currently unemployed and would cost $4.4 trillion. So I wanted to briefly mention that. And I wanted to also indicate that last week when we were speaking about the war is a racket and we cited Smedley Butler and our guest spoke to the issue as well of how much monies that this war economy makes regardless of the outcome of these wars. So that in and of itself can be a, a motivation for, for such unjust wars. Another justification for it, or false justification for it, has to do with what people have referred to in Iraq as well, looting by another name. 
And there was an article looting by another name by Kevin Zeese, who's passed away, just a great writer and social theorist from Counterpunch back in 2006. I wanted to highlight this real quick. There was a committee to, uh, for the liberation of Iraq, and it was founded in 2002 by Robert Jackson, a Lockheed Martin executive who also wrote Republican Party uh, foreign policy platform in 2000. And he formed the committee while at Lockheed and advocated aggressively for the overthrow of uh, Saddam Hussein. The chairman of the committee was former Secretary of State and Bechtel executive George Schultz. After the occupation of Iraq, Lockheed Martin received more than $11 billion in increased sales and contracts, including $5.6 million for the work with the Air Force in Iraq. Bechtel received another $3 billion in Iraq construction contracts. More importantly, and this is work that's by Antonio Yuhas in the Bush Agenda, and we had her on several years ago on a couple of different shows, and the book is a fascinating insight into how this economy was looted. The military intervention was a failure and, and very disorganized, but not the looting of the economy. And the looting was led by Paul Bremer, who replaced Jay Garner, who headed the Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, who was fired by Rumsfeld and replaced by Paul Bremer, who was in charge from May of 2003 to June 28th of 2004. Prior to the invasion, Bearing Point received a $250 million contract from USAID to develop a blueprint for the remaking of Iraq's economy into a free market economy friendly to U.S. corporate interests. And Bremer's job was to implement that plan, which he did. But in that process, there were some hundred Bremer's orders that were created that Juhas spoke to in her book and in subsequent interviews. Order number 39 allowed for the privatization of Iraq's 200 state-owned enterprises, 100% foreign ownership of Iraqi businesses. It was literally a takeover of this economy. Order number 17 granted foreign contractors, including private security firms, full immunity from Iraq's laws. So they were immune from any type of prosecution. Order number 40 allowed foreign banks to purchase up to 50% of Iraqi banks. Order number 49 dropped the tax rate on corporations from a high of 40% to a flat 15%. And the income tax was also capped at 15%. Tariffs, custom duties, import taxes, licensing fees, all of this was order number 12, were abandoned. And basically, it just completely opened up the economy for Western investment and pillaging, which is what basically occurred. An honest interpretation of our intervention into Iraq, in hindsight, now reveals clearly that this was a premeditated pillaging of another country. And Paul Bremer played an essential role in that pillaging. Meanwhile, Paul Bremer, George Tenet, the CIA director that said it was a slam dunk that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, and Tommy Franks, the leading military commander in this criminal act of invading and occupying Iraq, all received Presidential Medal of Honors, which is the highest civilian award one can receive. This speaks volumes as to what our foreign policy is all about and subsequently what deserves rewards. Again, to be clear, it reveals the character of our foreign policy. 
whether we acknowledge it or not. The last thing I wanted to add to that is that this was a model that demands economic reforms of the participating countries, and it prioritizes the United States' Western investment interests, multinational corporation-led interests, over the sovereignty and the interests of the majority populations of the countries in which these reforms are occurring in. The result being the gross profiteering at the direct cost of the majority populations. We call this spreading democracy. And the agents we use to do this include the United States Agency for International Development, National Endowment for Democracy, etc. An additional and important method for this economic pillaging came in the form of free trade agreements. There was the Middle East Economy, FTA, was modeled after NAFTA and sought to economically tie this region, which of course so much of the oil reserve, over 50%, would be available to the United States. And Obama later sought to promote the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, and the TPP pact would have enabled corporate power grab it if it had passed through Congress, and it did not. It would have granted new rights to thousands of multinational corporations to bypass domestic courts and directly sue the U.S. government before a panel of three corporate lawyers. And fair trade advocates were very vigilant in fighting that. These decisions by this panel would have been not subject to outside appeal, and the amount they can order taxpayers to give corporation would have no limit. Anyhow, so with all that being said, when we speak and we, st- we started speaking about last week the pillaging or the corruption within the Afghan government and the U.S. Washington Post article at War with the Truth, the December 9th, 2019 article in the Washington Post by Craig Whitlock that was summarizing the Afghan papers, which was a secret history of the war and all the, the deceit that the U.S. officials were lying about the progress being made in Afghanistan, lacked a basic understanding of Afghanistan, and were hiding unmistakable evidence that the war had become unwinnable. So first, with that introduction of some information, I wanted to formally welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness, Matt Howe. And Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me back on, Pedro. Just real quick, we had a fascinating discussion, and this is part two of that discussion, But Matt Howe, he had over 10 years' experience with America's wars overseas. He was with the United States Marine Corps. He was with the Department of Defense. He was with the State Department. He resigned in protest for Afghanistan over the American escalation of that war in 2009 with the State Department. He took part in active combat and just has a very genuine and I found it very compelling and very understandable analysis of what's just not making it to the airways at all. So thank you for rejoining us. With that introduction, basically about the looting of the economy and such, what parallels do you see between the wrecks and the Afghan reality that's being shaped in a much different fashion by our main media outlets? Oh, it's there. Afghanistan is a product of, you know, the global American empire in, in a very real aspect of that empire. You know, one of the most significant things, and some people argue the most significant aspect of that is extraction of wealth. You're right. I mean, people have empires throughout history, uh, including the American empire, which is, is a nascent empire uh, from the get-go, because as you're expanding westward, conquering the, the indigenous 
tribes using enslaved labor. I mean, that is all for economic gain, you know. And then, of course, the United States' role in Central and South America, somewhat in Asia, up through World War II. Uh, But then after World War II, you know, the United States is truly a global empire. The United States at that point has more than half the world's wealth and less than 5% of the world's population. And according to George Kennan, who was State Department officer, who was very influential in American foreign policy and one of the leading thinkers of uh, government and and foreign policy of the 20th century, he says that that's the whole purpose of the U.S. government, the whole purpose for every president going forward is how do you maintain inequality? So, I mean, there are many reasons, and, and I will argue that the economic reason is not the primary reason for the U.S. role in Afghanistan, but it is a very significant reason. And so having this empire and the extraction of wealth to benefit the United States and, of course, its allies, because the Europeans are included in this as well, as well, the Australians, the New Zealanders, the Japanese to a degree, you know. I mean, so, yes, absolutely, this type of thing, utilizing, and I think it makes more sense when you don't look at Afghanistan as a singular event. Right. But as you look at Afghanistan, one, as a continuation Mm -hmm. of history, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, so certainly you have to look at the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan since 1978, 1979, but the U.S. involvement throughout the developing world, again, whether it's Central and South America, whether it's, you know, I mean, you go back and we could talk about the Spanish-American War, the U.S. You know, taking the Philippines, the U.S. taking Hawaii, on and on. I mean, that I think you have to understand all that to understand what Afghanistan has been about. And then, of course, more specifically, the way the U.S. has conducted itself in the Muslim world, stretching from west coast of Africa all the way to Pakistan, not since 2001 or not since 1979, but, you know, I, I think going back to the end of World War II mm-hmm. uh, to understand the, you know, it, it's not colonialism in the sense that I think a lot of people are familiar with it. You know, you think of colonialism and you think of some British dude with his, his little uh, jungle hat on and his, and his shorts walking around with a, I mean, like that kind of thing. It, it's a much more subtler version of colonialism that evolved out of the European version of colonialism. And so you have, if you understand that, I think you can see how, okay, maybe the United States has not extracted much from Afghanistan in terms of resources, in terms of the way you could point to other countries, say Iraq, right, in terms of the oil and the prize that that was, the prize that Iraq was. Or even, say, as you were bringing up, uh, Pedro, and, and man, that took me back because I was in Iraq working on reconstruction and governance issues in 2004 and 2005. So I am very familiar with the things you were talking about. Paul Bremer's 100 orders, the privatization of the state-owned companies. I remember being there when they were being privatized, and it was, we are just not going to support a state-owned corporation. That's not good for the people. You know, all these kind of theoretical, ideological justifications for it. But then when you ask, well, how are any of the Iraqis going to purchase these companies? How, I mean, who's going to own these companies? Right. It was exactly that. Like, yeah, those are some nice words to say about freeing up the economy, economy liberalizing it, giving people a chance for ownership in their own production, you know, things like that, right? And then you realize that's all just BS. That's all just, that sounds really great, but that right. means nothing because it is just, as you said, this is a, a theft 
a theft for American and European businesses. Yeah, excuse me, but there seems to be several motivations, and and I think you're right that the economic determinism is not always the motivation. That there's geopolitical considerations, and then there's different types of economic windfalls. Uh, we talked pretty extensively, and Smedley Butler talked about it a century ago about how war was a business and a racket and by pure investment of these big Western corporations that benefit from making these planes and bombs and everything else, they make a huge, huge windfall. And then there's the issue of the looting of the economy, of creating investment scenarios in which corporations exploit these economies. This is what you know President Obama was trying to promote with the TPP behind closed doors was to give these corporations incredible powers, making them stronger than the sovereign governments of the countries that they would be operating in. I want to come back and have you speak a little bit to one of the things that we spoke to last week that is a, another overlapping theme that if you put these all together, then you can better interpret what's really going on in the world. But it has to do with the control of information and the narrative as we speak today and listening to these talking heads on various CNN and MSNBC and NPR that are shaping the image for the U.S. population, just as in this article about the Afghan papers that we were just referring to last week and this week in The Secret History of the War by Whitlock, the amount of deceit and knowing deceit that our government officials were heaping, this is all documented in this article and it's not in any way been really picked up with any great significance by our media. I was listening to CNN yesterday, and, and they were featuring, and this is on Jake Tapper on the 18th yesterday, a representative from Massachusetts, a Democrat, Jake Ochenlo in Kloss. To his credit, he was a major in the Marine Corps Reserve. But in his comments, and this is part of this false image making, he lauded what we have done over the last 20 years since 2000. He said literacy rates are two times higher, infant mortality rates have been halved, access to electricity has gone up significantly, when in fact, if you look at infant mortality, the CIA factbook indicated that Afghanistan's infant mortality is the worst in the world right now at 106.75 per 1,000 live births. And with respect to literacy, which is, of course, is people age 15 or over that can read and write, that uh, the literacy is just 43% in Afghanistan from the latest 2018 data from the same CIA fact book. Life expectancy, Afghanistan is 227th out of 227 nations. 2021 World CIA fact book you know, you can improve infant mortality, you can improve literacy rates, but if you're still the worst in the world, or only ahead of the few African nations of the world, then you're really misleading the American public to suggest that the quality of life has improved in any significant way compared to what it could be if there was not the types of interventions we're talking about. Can you speak to the on-the-ground quality of life for Afghanistans on the issue that this guy was maybe not knowingly misrepresenting, but certainly misrepresenting? Yeah, this has been one of the things that justifies the war. This is, again, we were kind of talking about what motivates the empire. And one of those things is its own self-image, its view that what the empire is doing is good, not just for people of it, but for the entire world. 
And I think that's not unique to the United States. I mean, I, I think certainly when you had empires like that of, of, of Great Britain, um, even that of Rome, the idea that they were bringing progress to other people, that they were developing other people, that they were carrying out an obligation to mankind to raise them up, right? Uh, the, the white man's uh, burden, so to speak. So that is a very real aspect of empire. I mean, one, one of the tongue-in-cheek, you know, beautiful things about it is that there's room for everybody in it. So if you're in it just because you want to be making the world a better place by bombing people, you know, but people believe that that's how you do it, you know, there's room for you, right? If you, I mean, so, but what, what you were talking about, Pedro, in terms of the realities of life in Afghanistan, it is brutal. It is a country that has been destroyed by war for 40 years. Now that many of the Syrians have gone home, Afghans are the world's largest refugee population. Before the Syrian war, they were the world's largest refugee population. So they've been the world's largest refugee population for more than four decades. Mm -hmm. As you said, the life expectancy and what would you expect from a country that's been plagued by war? 70% of Afghans live on less than $1 a day. So in addition to the war, you can understand how so many people living uh, in a subsistence manner, the public health issues that brings. There's no industry there. There's no infrastructure. There is industry, but the only real industry, the narcotics trade, that is it. There's really very little industry otherwise. Even when the Afghans have enough food to export, Afghanistan is is well known for its agriculture. I have never in my life had any fruit whether they be grapes or melons, like that I had in Afghanistan. Just absolutely unbelievable. So even when they're able to do things like export that, Afghanistan doesn't have the cold storage facilities. It doesn't have the electricity to keep it. So what happens is the Afghans export that fruit to Iran or to Pakistan, and then the Iranians or the Pakistanis sell it back to them three months, six months, seven months later. I mean, so in all ways, People are living a incredibly difficult, brutal, miserable life. The narcotic, which I hope we get into that, but which has been a tool of this war and is not representative of the Taliban, but rather representative of the war itself and the interest that the United States has had in the war. But I just saw recently um, a figure that one in three Afghan households have issue addictions, have someone who's struggling with addiction. Right. I mean, so you can see how that's, again, another another understanding for how difficult things are there. One of the things that's happened in the past week with the Taliban victories, people have really seen that. Traditionally, the Taliban have been primarily a Pashtun movement. Pashtuns making up a plurality of the Afghan population, Mm -hmm. and they have been on the wrong side of the U.S. divide-and-conquer strategy in Afghanistan, and so they turned to the Taliban for support. But what has occurred in these last couple years, and really this last year, is that non-Pashtuns are supporting the Taliban. Look, the Taliban represent a theocratic, repressive government. The other option the Afghan people have had for two decades now, at the point of U.S. rifle barrels, it had these two choices. So a theocratic, repressive regime or a kleptocratic, repressive regime made up of warlords, drug lords, etc. And so between the violence of the war, just the, the decimation of the society, of industry, of life, of the economy, all those kinds of things, people have said, including non-Pashtuns, that 
siding with the Taliban is a better thing than continuing to support this government. It means that car-carrying members of the Taliban or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It just means that because the United States for two decades have given these people these choices, this is what they are now choosing because the alternative, the Afghan government, is either so predatory and corrupt, people are so victimized by them, they're reaching out to the Taliban for help, basically, Mm -hmm. or they are so desperate and despondent that they know this has failed. They know that this corrupt, thuggish government of thieves is not going to ever do anything for them, so we might as well give the Taliban a chance. I mean, that's simplifying it. But I think, too, Pedro, to get to your point, though, about the media and the coverage, what this member of Congress says on, on Jake Tapper's show, and, of course, no correction whatsoever or no context. Yeah, that's and, a very good point up- that, that Jake Tapper did not. You know, they don't confront that perspective that was presented by the, a retired Marine or whatever, and therefore, it becomes part of the narrative. But I'm, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you. But Matt, before we move on, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. And we will be back with our guest right after this. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> 